Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Bertrand Bonello's Nocturama continues its theatrical run in New York and will soon be available to stream on Netflix. In the May-June issue, Howard Hampton describes the group of terrorists in the film as the, quote, offspring of a one-night stand between the devil probably and the breakfast club, end quote. This week, I asked... Elisa Ma, the head of programming at Metrograph, and Jeff Reichert, I'm a filmmaker and the co-editor of Reverse Shot. To discuss Bonello's film in the context of two other films about terrorism, here's the conversation. So today we're going to be talking about something that is evergreen, which is terrorism, and specifically terrorism in movies. This is nominally tied to the release of Bertrand Bonello's Nocturama. I quite enjoy that film, and uh, I, f- I feel like... That is a sentiment shared by you, too. I was actually a little more ambiguous about it myself. Mm-hmm. I I was more leaning towards having a negative reaction when I first watched it. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the first half unequivocally. I mean, yeah. it's just so elegantly formed and, you know, plays like a procedural like a heist film with minimum dialogue and the choreography is just ingenious and the shifts in scale um, from looking at the maps in the Paris Metro to crisscrossing onto different lines Mm -hmm. from, yeah, from the architectonics to the ground level movement, I think is just so elegant and beautiful. And then the second half is a sort of, sort of a Rorschach blot. I mean, you can't, it almost dares you to just dismiss it as an aesthetic exercise. Mm-hmm. And I think the the revelation that I had came later on when I realized, actually, I just can't really forget the cert- the images in the, in the film, mm-hmm. is, including those in the second part. Yeah. The second half to me sort of, uh, it, it left me with a sense that maybe Bonello had found a kind of productive way to deal with terrorism in movies. Because mm. I think... You know, one issue that I I tend to have when we see terrorists in films, I mean, of course, there's the the, the garden variety terrorists that we've seen in like the diehards and true lies and things like that, where they're just um, greasy. They're just greasy and (laughs) they're just boogeymen. They're just um, sort of generic boogeymen. But then I feel like after 9-11, when movies start to take or attempt to take terrorism seriously, they make all the the worst stuff. The, all the worst decisions mm-hmm. like well let's try and really get into the mind of the suicide bomber and create empathy for them that's like not that's not what i don't think anybody really wants that or needs no. that or, or that's something we can even really get at and so the idea that Benello is going to put us in this in this mall and just kind of create a, a fantasy but one that's also really seems psychologically accurate at the same time yeah you know watching it and thinking oh well if a bunch of millennials were locked in a mall overnight and they didn't have their phones what would they do? Mm-hmm. They'd play video games, they'd play with toys, they'd run around, they would do dumb stuff. Something about that got closer to the heart of, I don't want to say empathy, because he's, he's playing, re- he's doing really interesting things around empathy too. He's ask, he's mm-hmm. kind of bringing us close to them, maybe asking us to empathize and then pulling back. Yeah. So I don't know exactly, you know, 
what it is. I haven't quite figured out yet what it is, but it seems to, it sidesteps the traps yeah. of just kind of trying to make movies about terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is being vague about what they are blowing things up in the name of. Like, we only have the vaguest sense that they oppose the way that global capital is being accumulated. Like, only the vaguest notions of that. And I know a lot of people who have problems with the film tend to be like, well, what is it made? And it's like, that's not the point, ultimately. And, you know, you were saying it doesn't really try to get into their heads, but it does get into their heads in a way that I've seen it several times. And the part that I keep returning to is just when near the end, one of the younger terrorists has a dream and he sees one of his fallen comrades, one of his fallen friends appear to him. And this guy basically shows up like a friend and then starts to taunt him. And then he wakes up from the dream and it's utterly terrifying. And it's also a harbinger of things to come. There's a series at the Film Society of Lincoln Center called Deeper into Nocturama, which, you know, Bonello pulls a bunch of different films from different eras that maybe aren't directly related to the film in the way that the first half was is very clearly inspired by Alan Clark's Elephant. And the second half is very clearly inspired by George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And I feel like in one of the films that he included in the series was Fire Walk With Me. And it's like, oh, she just wanted to show Fire Walk With Me again. Because <laughs> like, who doesn't? Like, especially now. Totally. Like, come on. But a, a parallel between Lynch's work and what Bonello is doing in Nocturama is just like managing these different levels of story and managing these different perspectives. And the way that he does it is so in, in, in a way that you don't realize that you've gone into something until you're out of it. And like, th that's what I think makes the film just so ripe. And like, again, it's, you know, the ending is totally haunting and it's something that you well, ultimately, I feel like even if you hate it, you'll, you know, you'll keep thinking about it. Yeah, to my mind, the the characters remain more or less like opaque sides totally. throughout, um, and you know their sort of like united colors of Benetton mm -hmm. appearance only made them more ubiquitous. But whether you like it or not, this is a film that reverberates with a certain presentness because mm -hmm. if we look at when it was made, I think it was in production when the Charlie Hebdo thing happened in Paris, which is when I think he decided to change the title of the film from Paris C'est en fait, like Paris is happening or Paris is a party, to mm. Nocturama. And then when it was in, uh, I believe, the Bataclan attacks in November of 2015. And that was when the film was in post-production. Mm. So it's, uh, it's the production is bookended by these totally traumatic events that happened in Paris. So um, whether we like it or not, it is something that uh, harbors the nervousness and the energy of the of that time and it came out in Paris shortly after the it debuted in Cannes mm -hmm. in 2016 although we're looking at it from the North American theatrical release which allows for some retrospection um, I think you know the French audiences had a quite different reaction to it yeah. and a lot of a lot of films about terrorism if they're based on actual events or historical figures are created in retrospect they have the ability to step back there's a certain distance between the subject and the way that it is being portrayed whereas this is so immediate yeah I mean I know I, I'm gonna say anecdotally I had a friend who saw it on Sunday 
and then tried to watch another film afterward and just like couldn't focus. Mm -hmm. Like I keep thinking about Nocturama and I kind of don't know why, but you also know why. I Um, had this, a similar reaction to La Polonide, his, the mm -hmm. house of pleasures. Mm -hmm. pleasures. I thought I hated it when I first watched it. And now it's like one of my favorite films ever. It's all so much. His films are, seem like they're always all so much that, um, you know, it's, and he does, he makes these moves that you're just like, Oh God, this is, it's over the top. You can't handle it. Um, but somehow you leave, you think about it for a bit and then it all seems to make sense as part of a design, which yeah. is why I think he's, he's pretty exciting. Even, yeah. even when there are pieces of the films that kind of don't work. I really, I, I think the gambit he does with the, the homeless people in Nocturama. Oh my God. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a problem. And I think for me, it feels like it, he, he, he goes one step too far in mm. sort of making the argument or the case obvious in a certain sense. Like, mm. oh, here are these people who are being chewed up by this economic system and brought into this into this place where these people mm. who are fighting for them, but then they're all going to, you know, they're all going to be kind of like spat up at the end as well. Right. It's just a little too obvious of an irony, I think, for me. What did you guys think of the crying Joan of Arc shot? <gasps> oh. <laughs> Love yeah. it. That was that was a too much moment for me. <laughs> that was this film's version of the tears of come from yeah, La uh, Polonide. Yeah. Totally, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you're just like, what the fuck? Is <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> maybe he, he might he just like had CGI to fucking do it too. And I was like, why? <laughs> like egregious CGI. I know it's so it's too much. But like the first film of his that I saw was Saint Laurent, and that was just like fashion is something for me that. I enjoy wearing it, but it's like food. I would just rather experience for myself than like listen to somebody fucking talk about it because it's kind of interminable. It can be very, very easily becomes interminable. And Saint Laurent was just like such a, just like this really bravura, very compelling. It's like a very intense dream. And ultimately, you know, the sort of the, the twist, I guess you could even say, is that towards the end, it's revealed that this is actually just something that an elderly, demented Saint Laurent's remembering himself. Well, that almost explains the the like how the narrative is structured, but it also doesn't. Like it's still a biopic, and it's but it's still it's like when the Russian collection happens towards the very end. Like I wanted to stand up and clap, and normally I, if someone tried to tell me about like you know that in you know there was this very important collection, well, I I couldn't care less but he made it so compelling and yeah i I find that super interesting we can talk about other movies now we can stop we can stop sucking uh bertrand bonella's dick now we can switch over to other movies so i asked everyone to sort of bring two films that you know have different strategies representing terrorism elisa would you like to go first with uh your japanese classic well, I just want to briefly bring up Rafifi because I feel like it's yeah. such an urtext for for these, you know, heist films. And there's definitely a lot of it in Nocturama. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of it in the other, I'm sure, some of the other films that we're going to discuss today. But Jay Hoberman wrote this great thing about Rafifi in which he discusses the post-50 cinema as a time when filmmakers transcended modes of uh national versus international co-production and become transnational Mm. in that for example kurosawa's drawing on modes of like hollywood and soviet film models to create and you know like a japanese national cinema that would cross national boundaries Mm -hmm. and i think there's something about the the subject of the international terrorist that lends itself particularly well to this like transnational quality Mm -hmm. um and just 
has, you know, built and become more Baroque over, over the decades. Anyway, that's just a side note. No, that's a good note. <laughs> it's better than anything I've said so far. <laughs> so good job. <laughs> One of the films that I picked uh, to talk about today was uh, The Man Who Stole the Sun, made in Japan in 1979 by a filmmaker called Kazuhiko Hasegawa. Basic premise though it doesn't nearly begin to tell the entire story, no. is that um, a high school science teacher named Makoto, played by a Japanese rock star by the name of Kenji Sawada, <laughs> decides to build his own atom bomb in his apartment. Nice. Um, so he sneaks into a power plant and extracts... Uh, by dressing up like an old man. By which is like, like an old it's man. like this movie. Like it's again, so like the, absurd. Oh yeah, it's like, it's like a caper, but then, yeah, continue. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he steals these isotopes. Um, I mean, I guess he just walks out with these isotopes. Just like in his pocket? Yeah. yeah. And, They're um, <laughs> I wouldn't even know what one looked like. If well, you're not a high school science teacher, dude. Good point. Anyway. And he extracts plutonium from these isotopes in his apartment in order to make these atomic bombs. And so the procedural consists of him going out and taking the components that are required to make these atom bomb. And actually, the main procedure happens at home, where he puts together this insanely complicated process of putting together an atom bomb. He makes two atom bombs. One is sort of a fake one, and the other one's a real one. And one thing that's astonishing about this film to me is that... um, First, I should say that it was weirdly co-written by Leonard Schrader, who's Paul's brother. Yeah, writer of Mishima. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, one of the one of the interesting and I think like captivating aspects of terrorism on film for audience members is that it bears the promise of being able to make visible the invisible process that comes together to result in this uh, terrorist activity and also reveals the subjectivity of the terrorists themselves. And so throughout the whole process of watching this absurd film unfold, you actually start to kind of feel for Makoto. Yeah. Especially because after he finishes making the uh, atom bombs, he starts dying of radiation poisoning. And so the the film briefly pauses at a certain point to examine the physical um, decay that he's suffering um, from all the exposure to plutonium. Mm-hmm. And it's just heartbreaking, especially after learning that the filmmaker um, was in, he was in his mother's belly when Hiroshima actually happened. Mm-hmm. So Violet, you've seen this movie. Yeah. <laughs> It's, um, yeah, and I think the way that the Japanese government treated survivors of Hiroshima and, you know, people who were impacted by that radiation was truly appalling. Like, it was Mm. Japan, of course, being the only country where nuclear bomb has been dropped not once but twice. And, you know, in high school, they're always like, well, you know, they didn't really, they didn't really know what they were doing. It's like, they... The, the government knew, like people knew what a terrible force this was and they loved the idea of having this power. And I think that's sort of what this film deals, deals with a bit too. But yeah, it's, it's, it is it is like a lot of Japanese films. I feel like this sort of runs, we're going to talk about Japanese national cinema for a second. It does have this very bizarre 
tone to it where there's just times where it's like utterly kooky and then there are yeah. moments where it just shifts very abruptly and it's like so sad and I think you know even just like casting a rock star is just such a gamble but it pays off like he mm-hmm. does such an amazing job and why is he i haven't seen the film so yeah. why why is he building the bombs like what's the what's, well, his, what's his goal well there, there's a sort of innocence to him he earlier on it's uh established that he is regarded as a sort of hero at the school that he works at because he manages this to stop the heist of a a, a school bus and so, you know, there there is a little bit of that, like, uh, hero ego at play, which we see with a lot of these terrorist films. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of, like, innocence as well. I mean, first, you're dealing with someone with a particularly Japanese sort of, like, monomaniacal pursuit of, like, <laughs> I am going to do this one thing. Exactly. <laughs> no one is going to stop me. Yeah. Except for, in his case, it's an atom bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But there's an innocence to it, too because an innocence is required to some degree um, to carry out these tasks. Um, And part of that is just being able to ignore the fact that you're going to literally kill all these people. And in the end, he's demanding, you know, he uses a voice scrambler, but ultimately that's very easy to, you know, to catch. And he, the, the pursuit of, or rather the whole like end goal for him it's very strange. I mean, you kind of don't really know. He at one point convinces the TV network to um, show baseball without commercial breaks. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, just, yeah. I know some people who would probably feel pretty strongly about that here in the States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, the, the confusion is definitely you know a large part of it. Yeah. And the confusion that comes with having a lot of power, I think. Yeah. And that's, I, yeah. And it's sort of like, it, it carries a lot of different readings, I think. And again, like that, that's again, where the weird, the inconsistent tone comes in, but it's also totally appropriate and well executed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, the sort of, it, the movie makes a very convincing case for how you're actually able to just do this in your apartment. <laughs> Which is really the shocking part of it. When you walk away from the film, you're like, huh, wow, Pre- all right. Pre-anarchist cookbook. <laughs> but, you know, what's astonishing to me is that this is a film obviously full of satire, mm-hmm. full of um, danger, and it was produced by Toho, and it was a huge uh, national hit. Totally won all these awards in Japan and mm-hmm. critically acclaimed, so... You're looking for, uh, yeah, I recommend this film. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like a solid night out, but it's a weird night out. It's like totally, it's like, yeah. Well, it sounds kind of great. And I I love, you know, when, you know, asking about the objectives and you're kind of like, his objectives are really weird and you don't quite understand all the time. And I think for me, you know, going back to Nocturama, one of the things Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this idea of like productively making movies about terrorism you know i like that i don't have the one-to-one of like exactly why that they did this because i feel it's a kind of very limiting factor in terms of how you view it because then it's all of a sudden you're you're like okay well where okay they're their politics where are my politics where do i line up do i cast judgment on them because of my politics versus their politics um the two like suicide bomber films that i've i've come to talk about today (laughs) 
<laughs> but there were two released in 2005. One was an American film called The War Within, mm-hmm. and one was a Palestinian film called Paradise Now. And one of them, you know, obviously went on to be nominated for an Academy Award and win a Golden Globe. The other one is a terrible American independent film about a suicide <laughs> bomber. <clears throat> but they're really similar in a lot of ways. And it's they're both really invested in making sure we know exactly why these people might undertake these acts. And it's kind of boring <laughs> in a certain way. It's it, to have that one-to-one relationship to see in the war within at the beginning, you know, an average Pakistani American be picked up in a sweep and sent to some undisclosed location and tortured in really, really bad. I mean, just horrible, horrible scenes, you know, and then the Americans realize, Oh, we made a mistake. We're going to let you go. And so now he's become radicalized. But yet his family is not radicalized. They've assimilated and they're they're running a restaurant and serving people and just kind of living in suburban, um, New, I think it's New Jersey. And he, Those are the people Trump is talking about. Those are the jump, people who jumped up and down. Yeah, they were jumping up and down <laughs> after 9-11. And the rest of the movie is just him kind of grappling with, you know, whether or not he's going to go undertake this act. And Paradise Now is kind of, in some ways, the same. You meet these two guys, and they're, they're friends. And at the beginning of the film, they're working in a body shop. And then they go, like, you know, smoke a hookah on the hill and listen to some rock music. And there's a girl that one of them has a crush on. But then they're called to go blow themselves up in Tel Aviv the next day. And then they go through the procedure of kind of like shaving their heads and putting on dark suits and there's a last supper and then they go and things don't go exactly as planned. And it becomes almost kind of like a heist mm. caper film because they're crisscrossing each other and running back. And either, are they going to do it? Which one is going to do it? Um, and both films end with one of the main actors standing in the space where they might may or may not blow themselves up and a bunch of other people with a fade to white. Mm. And it just seems, it's so egregious. It's, it's such a, it's so cheap in a way to mm-hmm. put us through all of that, put us through all the motions of suspense films, you know, people looking in bags, I, you know, shots of eyes, people locking eyes across spaces, guards with guns, you know, are they going to notice? Are they going to stop this person for the end of, is he going to do it? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> what is goodness anyway? Like, what does it mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. They're, two films that are kind of obsessed with like that idea of both sidesism, yeah. you know, making sure that we understand, well, we really know, you know, why this, this Pakistani man, you know, we get it, you know, he was, he was tortured by the Americans by accident. So we totally understand why he would want to blow himself up and a bunch of other people the same way we meet, you know, the Palestinian folks that we meet in paradise. Now we hear in kind of interminable long takes and monologues about like ways that they've been oppressed. And these are things that clearly have happened to people, in, yeah. mm-hmm. in Palestine, it's like, it's not unreal in any way, but does it make, by bringing us this information in this context, is this a valuable cinematic experience? Do we need to, do we need a suicide bomber narrative to understand these other things that they're trying to bring to the table? Right. And I think it's, I think, no, I think it actually ends up cheapening, cheapening the kinds of larger questions that they're, that the films could be really interested in. You feel like the terrorist narrative is just like, it's like an excuse it is an excuse. It's a, it's a sensationalizing excuse. And the fact yeah. that both these films were, you know, that came out, came into the world in early 2005, we just think about production schedules and the time mm-hmm. it takes to sort of figure out a movie, get it funded and make it. We have groups of filmmakers, you know, far across the world, probably in sometime in late 2001 or early 2002 thinking, this is, we really need to make some suicide bomber movies so we can get into the heads and get these issues on, on the table. 
And so by the time you get in 2003, 2004, you're making the movies and they can be released in 2005. And it's as a reaction to an event like 9-11, well, movies on the whole have been kind of, they've reacted to 9-11 remarkably poorly. Very poorly. <laughs> um, and these two films, I think, are very, you know, very much in that vein, even though they do, you know, they, they are about this idea of suicide bombing, which is, you know, it's acquired a bit of like a mythological, it's become like a big vague fear for everybody yeah i mean i think this comes back to the reason perhaps why there hasn't been a great film about 9-11 or the iraq war or the war in afghanistan whatever is happening in yemen and pakistan is that we don't have that distance Mm -hmm. and with war films let's say films about vietnam a crucial part of those narratives is sort of being like is a, is a mea culpa and being like, we were totally wrong to do this. And, you know, most American films about the Vietnam War are centered upon white army men. And, you know, the war is sort of a backdrop for other issues. It manages to make that point. And with these, when you're dealing with something like terrorism, which again is sort of like an ongoing thing with certain exceptions, certain types of terrorist movies I'll talk about with my choice. It's it's a little stickier. So yeah, I do I, I do agree that it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to adjust things from the position of the now. I'm like we get this. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's what's really interesting about Nocturama is that he kind of he he figures out ways to kind of sidestep. He doesn't totally sidestep, right. but he figures it's, out some strategies. I mean, it feels that that film feels more now than most films. Of this year yeah. that were that were made much later than mm-hmm. that film, which is insane to me. But mm-hmm. he he does sort of like capture the zeitgeist. God <laughs> forgive me for saying that, but like he does, <laughs> he captures the zeitgeist, and he really he really hones in on this feeling of like hopelessness in a way that detailing their grievances couldn't. I don't want to like privilege the act of a suicide bombing to the point where I say, well, we shouldn't make movies about it. We shouldn't of try to represent yeah. represent it. But you know, by trying. The strategies that these films go through, it just it just seems like such a waste. Right. And it's not like there are a ton of these movies out there. No. Relative to anything else. And it seems like there was a bit of a moment in, like, you know, early aughts, <laughs> early mid-aughts, where people were really thinking about this. And then uh, people got tired of it. They're like, eh, snooze. You can just make <laughs> racist memes on the internet about it. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. But the film I was going to talk about, Marianne and Julian, which is by Margaret Von Trotta. And this film is very loosely based on Gudrun Enslin and her sister Christine. And Gudrun was one of the uh, Bader-Meinhof group. And her sister, Christiane, worked at a feminist journal called Emma. Ironically, Emma probably named after Emma Goldman, who was a famous anarchist and a feminist, uh, tried to assassinate Woodrow Wilson unsuccessfully. Cool, cool lady. Google her. Worth a Google. Worth a Google if you're not familiar. Um, but the Bader-Meinhof group was this very reactionary, um, anti-capitalist, pro-communist group operating in West Germany. And they, you know, they carried out a series of attacks. There's 
plenty of other films that have dealt with them, so I don't really have to get into it. But this this film takes these two the the relationship between these two sisters. That's really almost more about their you know their relationship as sisters, and it shows the ways in which you know for women how the personal is totally political. And Julianne, who is the um, non-terrorist sister, the feminist journalist sister, she really, you know, through flashbacks, you see how she's, she, she sees, she's sort of like a Simone de Beauvoir feminist where she sees like motherhood in feminism are mutually exclusive and that having a baby is sort of like a fascist move. And, and given, you know, that these two girls in the film and in real life grew up very shortly after they were small children when World War II was happening, you understand, you know, being part of that first generation, dealing with that and sort of understanding fascism is a lot of, a lot of fascism is about bodily control. And so it explores that in an interesting way. And Marianne, who's the terrorist, the Gudrun Enslin character, uh, you know, she has a kid and she had a husband before she became a terrorist. And then she sort of casts him off and it's like you know she feels that her bombing things is better than just you know talking about them it's like a really fascinating look at two women who are very different but then also and they're fucking mad at each other and what you know like julianne says to marianne you're undoing all of our all the work that i've tried to do with your bombs and then but then at the same time they'll still like exchange sweaters in the prison and talk about how like when they were kids even when they weren't talking to each other they would button each other up like that's sweet like there's something like very sweet about it well that's a really nice question of like it it serves well what if Mm -hmm. there were these two sisters right and one of them became a terrorist in the wake of the act right what might happen to this relationship and so it's not about all the stuff that most terrorist movies are usually obsessed with, which is the act right. and how the act is carried out. What's going to happen? Are they going to be able to do it? Are mm-hmm. they, you know, what parts aren't going to go right? What parts are going to go right? Um, this is all, it's all after. Yeah. The structure is very, I don't even want to say vignette. It's not, it's not vignettes, but it's just like, it just sort of, it, it has the momentum of a terrorist movie where it's just like, it just goes from one thing to another and there's not, and it, it is very like action packed. But again, it's like, the action of women where it's like, you know, getting into an argument at work about writing about your terrorist sister (laughs) and then going to the jail where your terrorist sister is and being like, I'm mad at you. And then, or her not refusing to see you. And like, like these, like turning these dramas, this interpersonal drama into something that is like totally charged and fascinating. And it's like, you have to pay attention or otherwise you're not going to pick up any of it. Like, Mm -hmm. well, there are all the flashbacks too, where it, it, I think, they do a really nice job of, <clears throat> you know, providing a bit of context for these people's lives. But again, not saying, well, this is the moment mm-hmm. when this sister decided to become a terrorist. Right. This is the thing like her dad was too mean to her <laughs> at this point, or this teacher was a real jerk. Yeah. And then they decided to become rebellious. Right. And I mean, in the, in the, in the, they're both rebellious, but you know, they're both fighting for women's rights and they both feel that the current system is untenable as it is. But one takes one route and the other takes the other route. And I don't think that the film editorializes really, which approaches better, which is also mm-hmm. nice and refreshing. Cause it's yeah. not like, Hey guys, don't, don't, you know, you have your women's lib, but don't blow anything up. Like it's not, it's like a very, it's a very measured sort of a consideration of these things. But Elisa, do you want to talk about your second film? 
Yeah, um, I I feel like um, a podcast about terrorism on film is probably incomplete if we don't bring up Carlos by yes. yes, which we've all seen and mm-hmm. which is beloved by all, I believe. Not totally by me, but okay. I, but okay, well, you'll have to leave. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know where the door is. I mean, there, don't there's let like, you. like five and a half hours, and I like many of those hours. <laughs> Okay. All right. Fair enough. You can stay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, of course, it's the biopic uh, that Olivier Assayas took a long time to make about Carlos the Jackal, the notorious international terrorist <laughs> by the name of uh, Carlos, who was born as Illich Ramirez Sanchez. Um, and his name is Illich because he's the son of a Marxist lawyer who wanted to name his son after Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Yeah. So Carlos joins the uh, PFLP in the late 60s and s- starts going between Paris and Lebanon and crisscrossing all over the Middle East. And I believe the beginning of the film, Carlos finds him as he is about to join the Palestinian freedom fighters. It's interesting because we've been talking about um, subjectivity, the, the portrayal of, um, you know, motive in, in these terrorists by the filmmakers. And um, I feel like Olivier Assayas does a really good job of portraying Carlos both as a sort of a faraway subject and also tapping into the subjectivity a little bit. Um, and one, one of the ways in which he does that are these, you know, uh, strange, uh, quiet shots of um of Carlos looking at himself. Yeah. Um the first shot of that comes fairly early on in the film when he just stands in front of the n- mirror stark naked after taking a long bath and he just stares at himself and grabs his dick. Yeah. <laughs> and new order plays. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> See, when I first watched that, I thought the the soundtrack was a sort of like empty uh, stylistic flourish but now looking back on it um you know it is of the time but also it it is a very subjective um has a very subjective quality mm-hmm. the way that it was placed into the film and uh layered over the scene so i i feel like it's a, it's a very well balanced film and th- of course asayas is a very intuitive filmmaker so He's able to fit in all of this incredible bi- biographical material in artwork that is completely feels completely natural, like a portrait of the times. I w- I'm interested to hear Jeff's issues with the film. Yeah, what are your bullshit objections? <laughs> I mean, they're they're not huge in a way, and it, it's also been a very very long time since I've seen Carlos. And even as you're like, I remember writing about that scene that you just described in a really negative way back when I saw the movie in 2010. But thinking about it again, it's like, well, it's, there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Especially when I'm thinking about these other movies about terrorism and the things that they kind of do. But um, there's a fun symmetry to that scene at the end of the film where he well, is in incredible testicular pain. <laughs> And I love, I mean, I would say I love the third part of it so much because he becomes like a fat bourgeois. (laughs) Like the last third of the movie, it's like, you know, a weird summer hours esque kind of thing. It's like time is passing him by and he's getting old and his balls hurt all the time. (laughs) And it's two hours that and I love that. Like yeah. the, the portrait of the terrorist as like a middle-aged guy with like testicular cancer is, is amazing. And I think also the, the second section is really the execution mm-hmm. of the OPEC heist is 
I mean, it's phenomenal. Just right. just oh on the level of filmmaking. And I think it's, you know, I did have a lot of issues with how he tries to get into it mm-hmm. in the first the first chapter. And it felt like he was trying to bite off a lot of, bite off the biography and the mythology. And like some sometimes the music felt weird to me for different reasons. But again, this is, you know, this is a seven-year-old reaction, so... Well, in part, I think the mythology of the character, the the way that Asayas shows Carlos, this is a character who buys into his own mythology, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> which is something I hadn't thought of, um, you know, before watching Carlos is that, you know, the terrorists, there, there is a, a mythology that they buy into, which is so tethered to their egos. And there's one scene when he tells the hostages you might have heard of me mm-hmm. yeah you remember yeah. that yeah. well yeah and he says he even like there's a part where he's like he says well, i'm carlos the jackal and he says yeah. it just like that where it's like he's 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 a rock star right even though he's um supposedly fighting for the palestinian cause he is totally into his own image right which was why to go back to the man who stole the sun mm-hmm. is interesting that he chose to cast an actual rock star yeah mm-hmm. in in the role of the terrorist yeah um but yeah they are rock stars to the world and in their own minds <laughs> at least in the carlos movie in the first part he's mm-hmm. definitely buying into mm-hmm. his own bullshit and I, I remember this scene when um his dinner date. Um, I forget the character. Uh, yes, she she tra- yes. she tells him that you're just a you know you just have this bourgeois arrogance hidden behind revolutionary rhetoric, and yeah. so there are moments in the f- in the film that are brilliant when it at once sort of taps into the subjectivity of the um, terrorist, but also becomes self reflexive as a film mm-hmm. as it comments on the role of the terrorist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating because. You know, again, this is a very this is driven mostly by action, and you but you get a total sense of who he is through those actions. Like it is such a great performance, and I mean, I think that's true of all everyone in it, but just especially Edgar Ramirez. You know, his his swagger because again, he is bringing he's perfectly encapsulating this very distinct type of middle-class Latin American machismo where it's like he can say that he's defending all these things, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's very much all about him and he loves himself more than anyone else on the planet could. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think SIS is too smart of a filmmaker to, to get into, you know, this is why he's a terrorist or, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the actual motives behind what he's doing, what he's doing, going where he's going. And instead, I think what he does is he dissects uh, the relationship between Carlos and his weapons in a really interesting way. And Mm -hmm. that I've rarely ever seen people really get into in these films that, you know, in the beginning, he talks about the gun as an extension of his body And there's something very sexual about the way that he portrays Carlos Mm -hmm. with his weapons Mm -hmm. and he can never be without them. And to tie that back to Nocturama, you know, there's a sort of like toy like quality that the characters treat weapons as, especially in the beginning. But even all the way through to the end, when they're playing with guns, of course, in the in the mall, but they're also like riding in these toy cars. Yeah. And there's a sort of make-believe quality to the way that they relate to the weapons. Yeah, I mean, the violence isn't real to them, 
they see what they've wrought on television. And Mm -hmm. that's definitely not a real way to see that. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, what you're talking about, the toys and sort of the sense of play, this very extensive sense of play. And at at the end, when real violence is visited back upon them, it's utterly terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's so chilling. And I think that's, again, that's what gives the film its power. And I mean, when Carlos is doing shit, it's kind of clear it's not real to him either, where he's, because again, it's just part of building. It's like, well, I'm Carlos the Jackal and this is what I do. Like, it's part of this performance almost. And in Carlos, you really don't see that visited upon him. You see it on other people Mm -hmm. um, and you, and including his collaborators, but it's just like, but you see, you see the mounting real life effects on the fully head diving into this mythology mm-hmm. that is like it's it's a artificial construct that they have in their minds and that they go with throughout the course of the film and in, in both Nocturama and Carlos you know there's a sort of like painful slow descend into the real life effects of buying into that self self mythology mm-hmm. and you know that they are headed for very terrible consequences and so there's a sort of like perverse you know fulfillment of the you know these terrors um in watching these films too watching these characters come to their demise yeah and i mean um speaking of nocturama again like the finnegan old old field character when he he so they're inside this mall and then he just sort of decides to go out for a smoke and part of that is because he really thinks he is invincible and that invincibility comes from youth, but it also comes from like terrorism. And it's sort of this really heady, fascinating mix. And it, you know, he goes outside and all of the streets are empty and it's this very oh, I surreal. I love that scene. Yeah. I know it's, and then he runs into this girl and he has a conversation with her and sort of like flirting with her, but then not really, he's writing the mythology as he, and then this, and then this, right. and it's like none of the, like, Everything was so thought, like so clearly thought out in the first half, and then the rest of it is just okay. Now we get to use our imagination again and just do whatever and improvise, and you see why that's awful. But yeah, I think it's also important too. You, you mentioned his youth, but but also he's white, yes, and he's wearing couture, yes, and so it's sort of he can own Paris, right? Mm-hmm, he's right. young, he's beautiful, he's a white man. No one is looking for him. No, um, especially not in that suit. No, no. Right. Yeah, there's a pretty clear class divide in Nocturama between the characters. Yeah, I think about half of the characters have gone to like a fancy school mm-hmm. and they're white. And then the other half are clearly just very marginalized, albeit beautiful people beautiful. in Paris. All beautiful. But it does help scramble our expectations, right? By, right. by, by making it making the crew that and never really telling us mm-hmm. how it all came together. Just taking it as a given. Yeah, right. Um, and even how old any of them are, because one of them looks like he's like 13 at the oldest. Yeah, the, the kid with the, the, with the curly hair. Yeah, oh he, he looks super young. And then there's Greg, who disappears. Maybe he's like 45? I don't know. <laughs> 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 old. <laughs> Listen, it's hard to be white sometimes, okay? <laughs> Your skin. <laughs> Just the skincare stuff. <laughs> but... Do you want to you want to talk about your second? Oh, I, 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 you know, I guess it's just such a hateful movie. But um, you know. <laughs> one of John Waters' favorite films. It is one of the worst films of all time. <laughs> um, but United Paul Greengrass is United ninety three, which um, former cover of the magazine. It was the cover of Film Comet magazine. It was. Wow. On, it guys. was, and the co- the cover. Um, now now I just now I'm just being mean, but it, it's like a blurry photo of them on the airplane. 
No. Jeff is making like a, I bit into a lemon face right <laughs> no. now. Um, Can you run a retraction of that cover? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I no, you know, I, stand by it. it's just what I, I remember seeing it, you know, it's, it's, it came out and you know, all the critics are like, this is so brave and it's so bold and it's so necessary. And even before seeing it, I thought, well, what is the value for any viewer in this experience? In having, have in like seeing this historical tragedy in it's in like good when you see a trailer for a film you're like what is the point of this like why why would you make this like why do we want like or why or why do we assume it is a valuable thing to show something in like minute to minute detail this recreation of this thing like okay to make it even more real in quotes we'll get people who were like air traffic controllers that day so they could talk the way that they talked and we'll recreate people's phone calls as they were calling their loved ones as the plane's about to crash what wh- why <laughs> it is like a weird grand guillon but also this is an important thing it's like a marriage of those two things and i think that's what is so perverse but then also what drives people to see it yeah and i, I think you know now a decade on from this movie coming out, I, I hope we could all maybe recognize that like what what is what does that act the act of making that film do for historical memory like what do we get out of it what like what if you like if you're the loved one of somebody who died on that day in that activity you know what do you get from watching some random actor portray your loved one hearing back to yourself the phone call that maybe they made to you as the plane was going down it's just it's the whole experience was struck me as so totally ghoulish from Mm -hmm. from conception through execution and then to reception because it was almost as if film critics were lining up to be like I'm the biggest patriot. I loved it so much. <laughs> that was a well, yeah, that was a really bad time. It was a bad time. I mean, a lot of stuff was a lot of stuff was pretty messed up in 2006, yeah. 2005, but Yeah, and I don't think um I don't think you could ever say as you're, you know, you're making a pretty good case that um oh, it was just the time because people still had their sense. There had been enough time between the event and let's say the invasion of Iraq, where it's like, hey, let's just, let's let's say this is actually this is actually a terrible idea. Let's not do this. Let's not make United ninety three. Let's not do it. And people still did, and people still uh, felt the need to be like, this is an important experience. It really makes you feel you're going to feel the suffering of somebody who is like dying. Like what? <laughs> you know, and, and, and in the way that the film. Okay, so like, how does it portray the terrorists? Let's say <laughs> you know they're they're just you know everybody is just a blank. Mm-hmm. Um, you see them in the mix of people as they're, you know, waiting for the flight. And there's all sorts of little bits and pieces of detail of this person on this phone, this person looking at their Blackberry, this person on like a legal pad or whatever. Is Are there ironic foreshadowings where they're like, oh man, I really hope this plane doesn't go down. I hate flying. <laughs> I don't think it gets that bit. Well, that doesn't even, that wouldn't even make it that much worse. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and like what? Somebody's listening to Alanis Morissette's <laughs> ironic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all it's like an it's a it's pitched as a thriller right and which is fucked up you know i'm sure in the moment people were there was a lot of adrenaline pumping on that plane but like representing it to audiences in the same vernacular that you know was used in um you know i saw mission impossible 3 the same day and i was i, I remember that today as i was thinking about the film and like they're cut the same yeah. They're just the same styles of editing and shooting and let's shake the camera around. Let's put it, put it on people. Let's create as much tension as we possibly can. I just think that's really inappropriate. I mean, maybe I'm kind of a fuddy duddy, but when it comes to something like, like murder of hundreds of people, 
it's not how I, I, I want it represented in my movies. Yeah. Do you have any uh, issue with the way that Nocturama was aestheticized? Not really, actually, because I think that for me, it is, you know, I think the things that as I've been thinking about this issue and we've been talking about it, the things that I really want are kind of like a temporal displacement from the act. And if we're not going to have a temporal displacement from the act, let's find some way to aesthetically displace mm-hmm. us from it mm-hmm. so we can be put into like a little bit of a different space. And so like, I like the idea of the injection of fantasy mm-hmm. into this thing, which is, you know, we don't know what exactly happened. We know they set off a bunch of bombs. We never know how many people were killed, how big the tragedy, how small the tragedy was. But in some ways, it's not the point after a while of the film. Right. Yeah, because one of the biggest criticisms of Nocturama in, in France when it was theatrically released, you know, I remember like Michel Simon said it was a very irresponsible film. And while a bunch of people had to sort of backpedal and say that, you know, we wanted to work with this filmmaker because he's a brilliant auteur, not because of the subject of the film. And Bonello himself said that, you know, he got totally divisive uh, feedback. You know, it's generally like the younger audiences who thought that it worked really well. And then the older audiences tended to really focus on the relationship between the storyline and reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was almost an issue that he did stray so far from reality Mm -hmm. that, you know, to their mind made it more irresponsible. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good point you brought up earlier too, that those people were there in a city that was immediately after horrible acts had taken place. And we're here in the United States a a year later, some horrible acts have obviously just taken place of kind of a different, a different stripe in a certain way, but um, it does give us a bit of a different way Mm -hmm. to look at it. I do, you know, the the word irresponsible, I think is really interesting because I think, you know, I, I sort of like his irresponsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what makes it successful for me where I look at, you know, I find a movie like Zero Dark Thirty to be very irresponsible. Yeah. Um, a film that was like co-written by the CIA. And it, it, this is, you know, this gets into the sticky area of inserting one's own morals and ethics into, right. like, you know, looking at films. But, you know, for me, my line, you know, if, if you're if you're toying with historical record, I, you know, I feel much different about irresponsibility than this sort of like this, the kind of fantasy that vanilla has but you know you're right it may not really have seemed much like a fantasy to french audiences because they were kind of right in the wake right yeah the question that you just brought up that's where art and politics can't be separated because it is a personal preference just like politics is Mm -hmm. like totally you can't like you can't you can't be like well i'm going to teach myself to appreciate united 93 you're either excuse this pun you're either on board or you're not (laughs) (laughs) totally like you just you can't Again, what I am allergic to is the idea that United 93 is an important film. It's an important thing to experience and that it would bring you closer to this thing. And I don't think anything about Nocturama is trying to be important. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a formal experiment. It's, you know, it's touching on a lot of different things, but it's not trying to toot its own horn, let's mm-hmm. say. But speaking of this question of, you know, proximity to events and sort of context keeps coming up. So the film that I was going to talk about very quickly at the end here is Julia Lochtev's Day Night, Day Night. Julia Lochtev's work, uh, she's a fantastic filmmaker. And I think if you've ever seen her documentary Moment of Impact, which is about her father, who was on his way to a garage sale, struck by a car, suffered brain damage, and is, is now at the time of the documentary, was uh, totally dependent on her mother. It's just like a really intense film. And the way the tension works in that film sort of runs throughout all of her films. And Day Night, Day Night is inspired by um, Locked Up reading this story about suicide bombing, which had happened on a street that she was just walking on. And she was like, well, I was on that street. 
in this, this thing could have happened and it didn't. And just like trying walking through that, trying to make sense of that. And it's just like, it's a very, the actress who plays the main character, you know, she's ethnically ambiguous, uh, let's say, and you don't really know what she's going to do, why she's going to do it. You just know that she has a bomb in a backpack and she's going to Times Square. And like, it's kind of, or Port Authority first. She mm-hmm. takes the train into Port Authority and it's sort of set in and around this incredibly, for people who don't live in New York, this incredibly dense, populous area where it's a lot of tourists, just a lot of shit going on, a lot of foot traffic and, and Locked have actually shot it without a permit. We're just sort of like mixed it in with, so. it seems like, like that. It's just like everything is just sort of, you know, people are just sort of going about their business and she's shooting a movie about terrorism. And I kind of like the fact that it is, again, stripping away all these other things and it's just tension and this definite uncomfortableness that is like, and you kind of have to sit with it and probe it in a way that you might not in something like, uh, I don't know, United 93. <laughs> <laughs> or that you can't in like Paradise Now or with them because it's constantly feeding you. It's right. you shoved know. in your face. Well, here's what they did as a child. Um, yeah. Here's what their mom was like. Um, here's what the problem was with their dad. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to end it there. But before we do, let's uh, each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. A completely non-terrorist tip. I saw Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence, Ooh. which is just like, oh my God. I just want to live in that movie forever. Oh, yeah, I know. It is the best of all things. Yeah. It is. And then it also, because it's like, it's so sad. Super sad. Mm-hmm. Great Edith Wharton. Great narration. How many shots there are. Scorsese is just like, drink this in. Yeah. Drink it in. And it's just like, so, so wonderful. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is great in it. There will be blood guys great in it. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is great in it. Yeah, and it's if, if it's something you haven't seen in a while, definitely revisit it because, um, yeah, it's just very pleasurable in every respect. Mm. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh. Yeah, no. Uh, obviously, it's more as Chris Stacey. Chris is yeah. he, you know, he doesn't sleep. <laughs> it might be my favorite Ooh. of all of his movies. Uh, it's hard to choose, but it, it might be one of mine too. Yeah, it's really hard to choose. Yeah, yeah it's way, way up there for me. Yeah, and it's in, in, and especially because it's just like he has such a mastery of. There was a time in the '90s where he kept doing this thing where he'd do like fade to red. I kind of wish he would do that again. Uh, yeah, fade to red and then iris. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then iris fade thing. to yellow. Yeah. He did mm-hmm. fade to red, fade to yellow, and then irising. And it's like he also did that in Cape Fear. Oh my god, I love Cape Fear. I love that movie too. It's so crazy, but so bonkers. Um, I don't know why you would like. You really got to get Robert De Niro for this. Get like a southern guy. Anyway, Lisa, what's a film that you saw? I watched Strange Days recently. I hadn't seen that in years and years, and it was shocking and well, shockingly resonant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would have to say it it aged pretty well for me. Um, it's just a brilliant, brilliant film. Very much like of that, like, um, 90s, what's it called? Oh, cyberpunk? Yeah, yeah very, very yeah. much of that 90s cyberpunk tip. There were so many of those films. There were so many, like, existence. <laughs> and, uh, Johnny Mnemonic. Johnny and Mnemonic. The Net. Yeah, The Net. <laughs> The net where like Sandra Bullock like eats a whole pizza every day, but it's like <laughs> Sandra Bullock size, yeah. And a computer program where she has like no physical exercise, yeah, yeah. A good time for movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, it's what isn't in that film instead in the uh, uh, the end of the 1990s, um, right around the Y2K New Year's Eve. And um, basically, uh, Ralph Fiennes uh, is a black market dealer of these videos that um, have that are viewed through sensors that hook up to your brain. And so you feel you feel what is uh, what was felt by the person who filmed the the scenes. Mm-hmm. And it gets really dark, and uh, you know it really it fucks up uh, your your mind because it becomes sort of a drug that people get addicted to. And towards the end, there's a race riot. Um, it's a weird film to be watching these days. I in, bet in the U.S. for sure. I, I would recommend revisiting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where's that technology? Where's Uber for brain? <laughs> Doesn't feel like we're that far off. Where's Uber for emotions, guys? But... <laughs> Jeff? Um, okay. So I was out of town for the whole Peter Nessler weekend that mm-hmm. you guys did here. And then Mubi put a few of them online. And um, I make documentaries. I'm really interested in older documentaries and especially documentary filmmakers that we don't, that aren't part of the, like, the, the usual canon that we talk about. And so I watched this short of his called By the Dyke Slice. And it's maybe like 11 minutes long. It's all static shots in this small town by the sea. But it's narrated by the dike slice. It's narrated by like this river dike that they put in place and talking about its own effects on the town and how its existence affects the people who live there and how it views the people who live there. And it just got me really excited because I'd never seen anything quite like it. That's not very Pierre Lorenz, though. Sort of, but the 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 really active, um, like the character of the Dyke Slice, I think, is slightly different than the the Pere Lorenz stuff. All right, fine. at least for me. Okay. Um, but anyway, you know, people talk these days about how exciting documentaries are and how they're you know pushing formal boundaries. And I, I find generally, I'm like, it seems like they they push boundaries to fall into the same kinds of buckets. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, oh wow, this one's like super stylized, and this one introduces some like some fictional elements. Wow. Um, what's real guys and, what's <laughs> let's real, ask guys? that question again <laughs> but this to me was it just it's like a, it's going in a completely different direction it's just like mm-hmm. we're going to create a character we're going to make the, this piece this object created by humans we're going to make it into a character and we're going to tell the tale of this town through this inanimate object mm. I just loved it it was lovely and it's also like 12 minutes it was like the best 12 minutes I've had viewing it in quite some time <laughs> <laughs> little pieces of heaven well thank you guys thank you Thanks. this was paradise now now you've been listening to the film comment podcast sponsored by filmstruck filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the criterion collection featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles plus original bonus material and filmstruck is now available on roku start your free trial today at filmstruck.com the Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine or check out our app available on Android and iOS at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.